Tlalo Falava, you're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. Coming up. They've had eight years of their lives, uh, you know, robbed from them, and uh, you can only imagine what that means for people. After almost a decade in detention on Nauru, six refugees have arrived in New Zealand for a new start. Also... Well, first of all, we've got to, we've got to make policing more, more effective. Papua New Guinea police are urged to crack down on deadly catapults, and later on... Like a big shotgun blast up into the sky. We expected the caldera of the volcano to just explode and be obliterated. More research is needed for Tonga's underwater volcano. Six refugees have arrived in New Zealand after being detained in offshore Australian detention camps for years. However, there are many more who are waiting for their freedom day to come. Their arrival is part of an offer made by the New Zealand government to resettle up to 150 people detained on Nauru and PNG each year. The Australian government accepted the offer in March this year and the first refugees arrived this week. Lydia Lewis has been covering the story and spoke with Refugee Action Coalition's Ian Rintold, who's been an advocate for two decades. I spoke to them, you know, in the weeks leading up to it, and then on the on the morning, and I've uh, spoken to one of them since they've arrived in uh, Auckland. There's six of them: um, one Sudanese, one Cameroonian, and four Rohingya refugees. What has the process been like for them so far? Well, mostly it's it's relief, I guess. Uh, they just said they had they had a, a very good sleep, and uh, that's that's really all that had happened. They'd arrived in Auckland and had a you know had a, a solid sleep, and they were. You know, then going to find out, you know, all the, you know, the rigmarole of, you know, getting, you know, signed up and filling out papers, no doubt, and starting to be, you know, shown around the, you know, what's in New Zealand, so that people get get oriented for their their new life there. And can you explain how long this process has been? The New Zealand offer of taking 150 people a year actually goes back to John Key in 2014, so it's. It's eight years, you know, that people had some expectation that New Zealand, you know, might be a possibility. But of course, New Zealand wasn't willing to do anything without the OK of uh, the Australian government. And it took until uh, March this year before the Australian government actually signed a deal with New Zealand about resettling people, you know, from uh, Nauru. So it's been a very torturous process. I mean, it's very difficult to sum up, you know, the the horrific circumstances on Nauru that people have, uh, you know, have gone through. Uh, to you know, to get to this point, uh, they've been denied uh, you know so many things. Uh, they've had eight years of their lives uh, you know robbed from them, and uh, you can only imagine what that means for people who were expecting to be able to study, expecting to be able to get on with their careers, being able to want, wanting to be able to work to provide money uh, for you know families who are in you know dangerous circumstances uh, at, at home, as well as offer them you know some you know possibilities of safety uh, themselves from you know family reunion. Uh, so um, it's been an absolutely horrendous process. I mean, Amnesty and other organisations have described it as a, you know, akin to torture what people have been through on Nauru. So it's a, a relief that they're off Nauru um, and uh, they can, you know, begin their new life. But as always, uh, they still have a lot of concern for the people who are who are left behind. That's right, and it's my understanding that less than 150 uh, are detained, and is it? frustrating that there is the 150 a year quota, I guess, yet only six have been transferred or resettled this year? 
Look, it, it is it is a frustration. I mean, the fact is that uh, all the people couldn't be taken off uh, Nauru to, to New Zealand. They still would have been under the 150. One of the obst- <clears throat> obstacles to that is that uh, while there are people who are still um, engaged with the US, as it's called, or the possibility of going to Canada, then they're not eligible to go you know, to Nauru, but, uh, sorry, to New Zealand. But uh, the fact is that people, I know some people who have been accepted to the United States, you know, more than four years ago, and they've heard, they've heard nothing. Uh, and there's no indication that they're actually going to end up in the, in the, in the United States. Um, so, you know, that, uh, it's a big problem. It's, in one respect, it's not New Zealand's problem. I mean, Australian government has, you know, a fundamental responsibility for the people that they you know, dumped offshore, uh, and <clears throat> really our argument is that they should all be brought to Australia, uh, regardless of where they may end up as a third country, if they want to accept a third country settlement, if they eventually get to New Zealand or Canada or the United States, well, that's up to them, but there really is no excuse uh, for the continued detention on, you know, on the road. Uh, their people's health, their psychological well-being still, you know, still deteriorates. There are many people who need medical treatment that's not available on the road, and yet they're not, they're not transferred anywhere to get that medical treatment. Absolutely, and I have been in contact with one refugee, Hassan. I'm not sure if he has been transferred to New Zealand or not. Maybe you could clarify that. But he has been transferred to Australia. And the last contact I had with him, he was saying that his mental health has deteriorated, that he's been kept in confinement in a room, uh, and that has actually impacted his mental health even further. And that's in recent weeks. What do you know about that situation? Well, her son has has been released now into community detention, uh, so that's a big relief for him. But he was he was you know ho- horrified that he was transferred from Australia, uh, to, sorry, to Australia from the Roo, uh, but ended up being you know in detention in you know in Brisbane, uh, contrary to what he was you know told that he should expect to, in terms of medical treatment. So not, not only did he not get medical treatment, he got you know more you know more torture as far as uh, you know detention in. You know, Brisbane was you know was concerned, and that's you know that's our, our concern that we have with the people who are being transferred you know to uh, Australia. Uh, that uh, people are still being confined if they do, um, if they are lucky enough. But it is an extremely exceptional circumstance. I mean, Hassan's just one who managed to get to Australia, uh, and uh, there are you know a very large number of uh, other people uh, that you know I know that 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 uh, notices have been given to the Australian government uh, over their concern about their 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 physical or mental health on the route but you know nothing's happening you know about that i think the other issue is you know is papua new guinea where where new zealand has a separate arrangement with the UNHCR to actually accept people uh, from uh, you know papua new guinea but um there's only one one man and his uh, PNG family has gone from PNG uh, to New Zealand, you know, so far. So it's another area where I really think the New Zealand government could be very proactive to engage, you know, directly with the, uh, the government in Papua New Guinea uh, to get as many people, you know, out of Papua New Guinea as uh, possibly can. They could, uh, as I said, they could take all the people that they've interviewed on the Roo, uh and all the people in Papua New Guinea and probably just meet the 150 uh, quota that they've that they've set. Lydia Lewis has requested comment from both the New Zealand and Australia governments. The governor of East Sepik in Papua New Guinea, Alan Bird, says policing has to be more effective if the country is going to overcome the growing use of deadly wire catapult or catapults. These easily made weapons fire barbed spears that cause grievous injuries and death. 
Mr. Bird noted dozens of injuries and deaths in his province alone. He spoke with Don Wiseman and began by saying violence is common across all of PNG, but this weapon has made things worse. In the past, we would resolve differences, I guess, by talking, and if that didn't work, people would resort to fisticuffs. Well, the younger generation these days is no longer doing that. They, if they have a disagreement, uh, usually over something that is very trivial, they would respond with violence, and usually violence with weapons. And the latest uh, weapon of choice is this bolt that's fired from a catapult. Clearly, very, very vicious weapons, aren't they? You want to do something about it? Well, first of all, we've got to we've got to make policing more more effective. These are weapons that are designed to maim or kill. They're not harmless weapons. I mean, these things are more lethal than a bullet. So obviously, in, you know, we banned guns in Papua New Guinea, and we banned them for over 30 years. So these things, uh, you know, they're easily made in, in someone's backyard. So we're looking at the law right now to, to tighten that up. So that's the first thing. For instance, carry a homemade gun or a gun, and if, if a police officer shoots you, then um, the court can let you off because you are using a dangerous weapon uh, with intent to harm or kill. Uh, I think we've got to treat this, this particular weapon the same as a gun. So these are the sorts of things we want to do. Tighten up on policing, amend the law if we have to, and make it an offence if you're carrying or making one of these things. So these are the sorts of things we're looking at. But at the same time, we've got the community and the community initiatives have been nothing short of, you know, they're very praiseworthy and, and very effective. The local leaders are now moving around the community and asking all the young people to surrender these weapons. And many of these young people are juvenile, the vast majority of them. They're all under under 18. And this community call, how effective has it been? Uh, so far, I think about five communities in Weewek Town have surrendered their weapons. And, you know, we're looking at more long-term ways of, you know, figuring out how to... And, and I think that's the important thing. If the community uh, disgusted by the use of these weapons and takes action, which is what we're seeing, then uh, it'd be much more effective, you know, when combined with stronger law enforcement and tougher law and penalty. Does that mean you want to see a lot more police in your province? I think we want to see a lot more police across the whole country, not just in the province. Well, given all the other constraints on PNG, is that likely to happen in the near future? I've said to many people at home, if we need to you know, cut back on, on funding for other priorities and, and direct that funding to law and order, then that's what we've got to do. I mean, if you're going to the hospital to seek medical treatment, you could face some criminal elements on your way to the hospital. Uh, we had children on the way to school, you know, a couple of weeks back, a child got beheaded on the way to school, so it's not even fair to go to school anymore. And then these are crimes that are premeditated or they're not crimes that are designed to steal things from people or anything like that. They're just opportunistic crimes that don't make any sense. So we've got to handle crime before you can do anything else, really. So if that means a rethink on our part about how we're prioritizing which sector of the, of society to sort of intervene in, I think law and order just push themselves right to the front of the queue. Plans are in place for more global scientific collaboration to better understand submarine volcanoes and the Ring of Fire, following research on the impacts of Hunga Tonga Hungaha by eruption and tsunami. New Zealand scientist and a Tongan government official says the findings from the first Tonga volcano expedition are significant, but more research is needed. Lydia Lewis reports. On January 15, 2022... Oh. 
the Kingdom of Tonga experienced the biggest atmospheric explosion ever recorded on Earth. Waves slammed the kingdom. Tsunami warnings were issued. The impacts felt across the Pacific in New Zealand, Japan, Peru, the US and Canada. Like a big shotgun blast up into the sky. We expected the caldera of the volcano to just explode and be obliterated based on the size of the eruption. But after we've mapped it, what we've seen is that most of the outside of the caldera is fine, but all the material in the middle has just blasted up and out and up into the sky. And then that's come down and caused and driven the pyroclastic density flows. So those are like an avalanche underwater. Niwa chief scientist Mike Williams says the full findings from the Tonga volcano expedition are internationally significant, with scientists from Australia, Mauritius, Egypt, Poland, Ireland, the UK and the US involved. What we've been able to confirm now that we've completed all the mapping is this is the largest event ever recorded by modern instrumentation, certainly the biggest eruption in the last century, and probably Krakatoa you know, still remains, remains bigger but it was never observed with modern instrumentation, so it's always hard to make that comparison. For natural hazards, principal scientist Dr Emily Lane, it has been a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to research the force of the dense underwater lava flows, one of the biggest unknowns of the eruption. The eruptive column then collapses down and comes raining over the sides of the edifice. This creates pyroclastic flows, which are currents made up of dense lava and volcanic ash. Dr Lane has been investigating how they contribute to tsunami waves. Some of those currents from that travelled you know, up to 80 kilometres away from the volcano, so they covered this, this huge area. Modelling suggests both the domestic and international telecommunication cables were wiped out by the sheer force of the flows. The domestic line is buried under 30 metres of eruptive material. That international telecommunications cable actually got dragged about five kilometres back towards Hongatonga Hongahapai. A robot boat operated remotely from the UK by Seekit found signs that Hungatonga Hungahapai is still erupting. On top of that, the equivalent of 2.6 million Olympic-sized swimming pools of sea floor was displaced, wiped out by strong pyroclastic flows, leaving the sea floor looking like a desert. But scientists found hope. Dr Lane says pockets of sea life were found. There were biologists who were sort of looking at what the impacts were on the flora and the fauna around there and understanding how this plays out over time. For Tania Lakula, who is the head of the Tonga Geological Services, the confirmation from scientists that this was the highest blast ever recorded, breaking through the metasphere, stood out. This demonstrates the, the power and the potential of uh, volcanic eruption in our region. This means this raises questions about the safety of the public, which requires long-term planning, hazard assessment, to ensure our development incorporates all the potential hazards from future volcanic eruption. A threat Dr Lane says is real for all countries dotted in and around the ring of fire. All of the Pacific Islands you know, do have to worry about them. I mean, if you think about it, back in 2008, 
2009, the Samoan tsunami, there were more fatalities up in Samoa because it happened sort of right up there. It was sort of very close to that. But there were fatalities in the Tongan archipelago. Seismic tsunamis are also a hazard in Tonga. 80% of all tsunamis are seismic. 5% are volcanic, making this newfound data from samples collected soon after this year's volcanic tsunami critical in informing global science. This is a really significant event on a global scale and, and, and really significant for countries that live on, on the ring of fire near the plate boundary that runs through the Pacific. We've got lots of submarine volcanoes along that chain up from New Zealand through the Pacific Islands, past the Philippines, up to Japan. With likely over 50 submarine volcanoes in Thongan waters, the need to better understand them is strong, with the human cost of not knowing still raw. <laughs> Mr Kula says discussions have started through informal meetings with Niwa about the next phase of research. We will have to prioritise choosing from the largest submarine volcanoes and go from there, and obviously... Ponofo is the next one. So this submarine volcano is is a likely potential, and this is potential for eruption, but this is uh, it's marked as one of the volcanoes that we'll be studying next. Get more information on the structure and the formation of this volcano. Mr Kula says the findings from the Tonga Volcano Expedition are to be used to inform long-term planning and to make policy decisions. Moana Pacifica has announced its roster for the 2023 Super Rugby season. The roster retains most of its player from this year's tournament, which includes captain Sekope Kepu and star fly half Christian Lealiifano. Only five uncapped players enter the team, including Samoan Seven star Mirko Vailangi. Final Fonoa has more. This year, Moana Pacifica will be stronger and better, was the message from coach Aaron Major following his team's announcement on Tuesday. Moana Pacifica made its Super Rugby debut this year, finishing last in the competition with only two wins from 14 games. The result is far from discouraging, as most did not expect the team to excel in its first year. Assistant coach Philo Tiatia said the team's season-long experience would make a huge difference. I think uh, if you look at our selection, you'll see a lot of names that were there last year. And we want to really build cohesion, first and foremost, build chemistry and, and obviously build consistency that can really match with the, the teams that have been formed here. We're excited for our second year, but we're under no, under no illusion on how challenging next season will be. Tia Tia says the dramatic experience has forged a unique bond between the players as they enter their second year with fan expectations of performing better. That's Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Pavitai Tele Lava, Manuile Poo.